I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Luke uh, chapter 22. We've been skipping all over. Some of you by this time may be wondering if I'm biblically dyslexic. Uh, I, I don't think I am. Uh, I have intentionally uh, taken verses out of order. Uh, for one thing, I wanted to land on uh, the Last Supper passage on the Sunday of Communion and uh, have the opportunity to, to bring these together. But um, uh, just by way of background, I want to kind of bring you up to, to speed with what's happening here. We're approaching Christmas, but I'm talking about Easter and Holy Week. And uh, really, uh, the truth is, all year long is Easter, and all year long is Christmas. We celebrate the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ because God took on human flesh, clothed Himself in our skin, came to our world to uh, reveal the Father to us and also to be a sacrifice, the, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And then we recall His, His sacrifice for us, that He died on the cross, that He might redeem us, save us and rescue us. And so, uh, all year long, we celebrate uh, these events that we have isolated to two holidays in the year, but really permeate uh, the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. Way back in the middle of Luke's Gospel, Luke uh, took us on a turn as he told us that Jesus began to set his face toward Jerusalem. He made a focus to go to Jerusalem. And uh, Luke has obviously skipped over a great deal of material in the life of Christ. The way John puts it at the end of his Gospel, if everything were written that could be written about Jesus, I suppose the whole world couldn't contain the library. Well, that's a, a bit of a, a hyperbole, but nonetheless, it's... Uh, you know, it's true that Jesus did and said so many things. But what we have recorded are those important things that we need to know. Everything that we need to know for life and godliness has been recorded for us, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And in that uh, middle of Luke's Gospel, as Jesus uh, turns toward Jerusalem, He has been looking forward to and contemplating uh, His final journey to the temple area, to the holy city, for the time of Passover and the realization that His time was coming when He would give His life as a ransom for many. In Luke chapter uh, 22, beginning in verse 1, I'd like you to follow along uh, as I read for you. Now the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money, so he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. Then came the first day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. 
And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, When you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. When the, Lord, when the hour had come, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they begin to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. Luke tells us that the religious leaders were looking for a way to get to Jesus that would not um, put them at risk from the crowd. The, the dynamic that was going on is that um, the crowds were loving everything he had to say. They were hanging on every word. They came to the temple every day to hear from him. The religious leaders were furious. The spotlight was off of them. Uh, the, they could sense that the hope of the people was shifting. And they were wondering how they could separate him from the crowd in such a way that they could uh, get their hands on him and arrest him without <laughs> ending up in a riot and being hurt themselves. Luke has told us that they were, or that Jesus was going off into the mountainside to, uh, to, to pray and to, to uh, you know, go away every evening. And they had no idea where to find him. And so they were looking for an opportunity. And uh, Judas kind of played right into their hands. The Scripture says that Satan entered into Judas. Now, one of the thoughts I had this morning as I was uh, back in my study reviewing and praying over the message was, I wish in some ways I could go back to Luke and start over and just pick out the little verses uh, those of you that have been with me from the beginning of Luke, you can see where that could go. Um, Jesus may return before I finish. But anyway, um, 
I, I just felt like I'd like to go back and pick out some of these little statements that uh, have all kinds of uh, intrigue and, and uh, theological and doctrinal insight into them. And, and there are many of them. Last Sunday's passage was just full of things I wanted to chase down, and there just wasn't time in one sermon to, to, to run them all down. But it's interesting that the Scripture says that Satan entered Judas. That happened because Judas had already played into his hand. Uh, friends, demons nor the devil ever makes us do anything that we are not interested in doing. Uh, he never comes on us and takes over without consent. Uh, we have the power of God resident within us. And in order for the enemy to gain a stronghold in anyone's life, they have to give him an entrance. And it just so happened that Judas gave the devil an entrance into his life because uh, Judas was a, a, a character study of conflicting internal kinds of turmoil. For one thing, he was looking um, for some kind of political savior. He wanted uh, Jesus to rescue the Jews from Rome, to lead the revolution, uh, to, to, to ride in, as it were, uh, on some, uh, you know, uh, kingly power and conquer uh, over Rome. And as time went along, Judas realized that was not his idea. And Judas began to be disillusioned with the fact that Jesus was not playing it out the way he had hoped. You can argue with a person politically and, and have differences, and it may or may not be a moral issue. Um, we're in the midst of a lot of political arguments. They may be moral issues, I don't know. But, but you can have a lot of political disagreement and agree to disagree. But on the other side, in the heart of Judas was a character flaw that combined with his political disappointment set him up as the perfect patsy for the, uh, the religious leaders. He loved money. And he was a thief. And the Scripture says he used to pilfer the money bag. He had already worked his way into being the treasurer of this little group of disciples. He maintained the money bag, which we're told he often uh, helped himself from. And in the course of that, his love of money and his political disappointment conspired together to put him in a situation where he could play right into the hands of the religious leaders and they could manipulate him to accomplish what they wanted to. They offered him money to lead them to Jesus at a time when the multitudes would not be around. And that leads us to the second part of the story. As Jesus uh, tells his disciples... 
that um, he wants them to prepare the Passover. And they say, where do we want to eat that? And I want to tell you that what's about to unfold uh, is worthy of a Robert Ludlum novel. (laughs) This is a spy craft at its finest. Uh, it's a it's a really clever uh, kind of uh, thing that Jesus has set up. Commentators are all over the place on whether this was um, prophetic foreknowledge or whether it was uh, uh, some kind of divine uh, omniscience. Uh, I, I really rather suspect, and you know me well enough to know that that I'm fully <laughs> embrace the miracles of Scripture. But I, I, I really believe that Jesus had had some conversation with a trusted friend. And we don't know exactly who this was, but it was someone that had a large home and had a place where they could meet. And he'd had a conversation that set things up so that um, he could uh, make arrangements to have the Last Supper with the disciples without tipping his hand as to the location. He wanted to have this time alone with his disciples, uninterrupted by what he knew to be Judas' effort at betrayal. And so it was essential that Judas not know where they were going to meet. He had to wait until he got there before he could slip out at a convenient time and go tell the religious leaders how to find him. And this bought Jesus enough time to have this supper with his disciples. And so he said, Peter and John, I want you to go into the city and you're going to meet a man. A man is going to meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him to the house where he goes. And say to the owner of the house, the teacher wants to prepare the Passover. Now what makes that interesting and intriguing is that men didn't carry pitchers of water. You know, it's like saying you're going to meet a man with his hat tipped to the left and an umbrella in his left hand. You know, watch for that guy. Only the women carried water pots. And so to find a guy carrying a water pot kind of was unusual. And he said, when you see that fellow, follow him to the house. There not to be any conversation. They weren't to be seen going up and, uh, are you the guy we're supposed to be looking for? No, none of that. Just follow him to the house. And when you get to the house, say to the owner, The teacher wants to have the Passover. And he will show you a large upper room. And so, in this very secretive way, Peter and John are able to go to a house that is all ready to receive Jesus and the disciples and to go into this uh, lovely upper room environment and to prepare for the Last Supper. And there... They made the preparations. Now, one of the things that, as I contemplated this passage that came to me, is that this is the middle 
of three very significant Passover banquet type meals. The very first Passover was held in the land of Egypt at the time that God had sent Moses back to announce deliverance to his people and to demand of Pharaoh, let my people go. And God gave some very specific instructions on how to slay the Passover lamb, to put the blood of the lamb on the mantle and the lintel of the doorpost, which formed the image of a cross. And when the angel of death saw the blood on the door in the shape of a cross, they would pass over that, and no one in that house would be harmed. And so the Israelites celebrated that first Passover meal, which signified for them the mighty deliverance that God was bringing them from the land of Egypt, which was a place of bondage, into a promised land that he had offered them, that was a place flowing with milk and honey, a place of bounty and abundance, and a place where they could call their own and and be their own people. And as uh, they celebrated that first Passover meal, God's commandment through Moses was, this will be a perpetual reminder for you. Every year you will celebrate this Passover. And every year you are to remember that I have brought you out of a land of bondage unto a land of promise. And you are to remember that the Passover lamb was slain, which has brought life to your households and spared you the death that came upon the Egyptians. And so that first Passover included all the nation of Israel, some approximately two million strong, we learned from various uh, analyses of the passage as they celebrated this uh, marvelous first Passover. And then down through the years, as the Jews continued to remember and to celebrate, we come to this special evening that is the fulfillment of all that that pointed to. Uh, we could do a whole study on Hebrews and Leviticus and see together how the Old Testament foreshadows uh, the Lord Jesus Christ in such a powerful way that all of the symbolic actions that they took uh, were predictive of the spiritual and literal uh, things that Jesus would do as the true Lamb of God and the true Redeemer. And now we come to this pivotal moment in human history where Jesus is sitting at a table, not with two million, but with twelve. He's sitting at a table in an upper room and he's representing himself as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And he himself is the fulfillment of all the hope and of all the promise. And out of that evening... And out of the crucifixion and the resurrection would come a, a proclamation 
that the Lamb of God has been slain and life has come. There's forgiveness of sin. There's freedom from the bondage of sin and the law of sin and death. There's opportunity to be freed from your past and to embrace new life, to live in resurrected life and and to, to walk with Him and have fellowship with Him. And as that message spread, there will be another great banquet. At the end of time, in the consummation of the age, as all the redeemed of the Lord have finally uh, made their commitment to Jesus Christ, there will come a moment when Jesus returns and we celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this time, there will be representatives of every tribe and tongue and nation, and all the peoples of the earth will be gathered together. Everyone that has named the name of Jesus Christ and found freedom and forgiveness in Him and life through His blood, we will have this great banquet, this great feast, when we come together and celebrate the marriage supper. And as I thought about that, I want you to remember those three occasions. I want you to remember that first Passover and all that it anticipated. And then I want you to remember this Last Supper, the Lord's Table, and all that it signifies as we look back on that moment. And then I want you to think about the the banquet that's coming, that last Passover. Jesus said, I'm not going to drink of this cup again until I drink it new with you in the kingdom. It's like a foreshadowing that there will be a Passover celebration of remembrance, but it will be a banquet feast as Jesus sits down again with us and partakes of the Passover meal. The Lamb of God who has redeemed us and our lives from the pit. What a glorious, glorious time. And as we consider that, I think about the fact that Jesus says, this is my body. As he took the bread and as he broke it, this is my body, which is given for you. And out of that broken bread comes the radiance of life. As Mark mentioned in the beginning when we took the Lord's Supper together, and his body was broken for us that we might be restored, that we might be healed, that we might have life. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup, this is my blood, uh, the, the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you for the remission of sin. There were four cups at the Passover meal. And throughout the meal, each one of those cups was taken. Uh, One was the cup of deliverance. I will bring you out of the land of Egypt. One was a cup of God's wrath being poured out upon those who are disobedient. Uh, The cup of wrath. And one was a cup of redemption. It was this cup that Jesus took 
and said, This is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. This is the cup of redemption. I am going to redeem your life and restore it. And it is in His blood that we are cleansed and made whiter than snow. Friends, you and I cannot atone for our sin. We can't pay the price. It's too steep. The soul that sins will die. There, there's no halfway. There's no uh, partial payment. We cannot make amends. Jesus Christ died for us. His blood was shed for us. And as He took that blood and sprinkled it, according to the writer of Hebrews, in the heavenly mercy seat before the throne of God, and He sprinkled that blood there before the Father, it is a testament that I have cleansed the people with My blood. And all who will come to Him can experience that cleansing. Remember that the high priest could only enter the Holy of Holies one time a year with blood on his hands as he sprinkled it there on the mercy seat. But Jesus entered the eternal tabernacle in the presence of God before the heavenly mercy seat. And He sprinkled that blood once for all so that we, by a new and living way, could have access to the very throne of God. It doesn't have to be done again. We don't have to do it ourselves. He has entered as a forerunner before us. And we can now follow Him into that holy place. And we can come, as the writer of Hebrews says, boldly before the throne of grace. We can call Almighty God of the universe, Daddy, Father, Abba, Father, My Father. And we can make our request known because Jesus, our High Priest, has offered His own blood on the mercy seat of heaven and given us cleansing from our sin. I want to remind you this morning, and as I was reflecting on the events of this last week, the events of the weeks prior, and all the things that we're facing in this world. I was listening to CNN as I was driving into work one morning, and whoever the reporter was was interviewing a psychologist and asking the question, What can people do to deal with their fears and with their anxieties? What can people do to cope with the uncertainty of our lives today? And this psychiatrist um, said some things that as I listened, I thought that's the most words in a non-answer I think I've ever heard. It's not that she was trying to, to belittle the question. She didn't have an answer. 
she said, well, we have to think on the bright side. We have to look at the good things of life, and we have to savor the things that we have, because we don't know when we could be killed at any moment. Oh, that's helpful. That gives us great comfort. In other words, that's just the way life is, and you're right there where you started. (laughs) You have no idea what's going to happen, and there's nothing you can do about it. So just buck up and put a smile on. Don't worry. Be happy. That's the answer. And I thought, Lord, I need to speak Sunday morning on the Last Supper. There's all kinds of ways I could approach it. I could bore you with theological perspectives consubstantiation and transubstantiation and the memorial view and the symbolic view and what earthly good is that going to do you? What spiritual good is it going to do you? It it matters. I'm not saying it doesn't. It matters. But, But I thought, Lord, how does this suffer, this Passover meal, relate to our circumstances in this world today as we see ourselves moving ever closer toward the time of your return and the world is getting crazier moment by moment. And I was reminded of the passages of Scripture that tell us that Jesus' body and blood are a source to us of spiritual food. There's a mystical kind of union between His body and His blood in our lives. I'm not suggesting to you for a moment that when you take this broken matzah cracker and put it in your mouth, it turns into the flesh of Christ. That doesn't make sense on any level. But Jesus said in John chapter 6, Truly I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats My flesh and drinks My blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. My flesh is true food, and My blood is true drink. He who eats My flesh and drinks My blood abides in Me, and I in him." Let me tell you what, the Jews really got frosted over that one. Nothing could be more offensive to them. But Jesus wasn't talking about his literal body, and he wasn't talking about some piece of bread that turns into his body. He was talking about the fact that he is the bread of life. And His blood is the true drink. If you want the deepest needs of your soul and heart met, 
you need to come and eat of Him. Not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. You need, just as you need to eat every day to maintain your physical health, and you need to eat nutritious food, and you need to drink water, <laughs> you need to keep yourself hydrated. Jesus is saying, you need to come to me every day. You need to spend time in my presence. You need to partake of me. You need to drink of me at my well. I have living water and and you won't thirst. I have real food and you won't be hungry. And he's talking about uh, the deepest longings of our being. Are you afraid? I will never leave you nor forsake you. There is nowhere you will go that I will not be with you. I will always be with you in trouble. Do you have anxiety? And he says, give me all your cares because I care for you. David says it's under... Uh, the the pinions, the, the, the feathers of your wings that I take refuge. Do you feel unstable and uncertain? Lord, put me on the rock that is higher than I. Give me the rock of Jesus. I need to stand firmly upon His solid foundation. Jesus said, I will give you Peace, not the way the world gives peace. I will give you peace that you cannot even explain. I'll give you peace that will go beyond anyone's ability to to offer a description. It will defy words. A peace that goes beyond comprehension. I will give you myself. And this is the answer that we need. To come into His presence and to take of Him. Peter, in his first letter, says as he opens that letter to the churches, Peter, an apostle of Jesus, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontius, Galatius, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Do you know this morning that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, He knows your name. He set His affection upon you. You're known to Him. You're not anonymous. You're not obscure. You're not just another face in the crowd. He knows who you are. He knows what you're facing. He knows what you're dealing with. He is particularly interested in your life. To obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood, may grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. We are among those who know for sure where we're going. 
We have absolute confidence that the last breath we take on this planet, we will take the next one in celestial air in the presence of God. But we will never die. No one can take our lives. We belong to Him now and forever. And He will bring us safely to His heavenly kingdom. We of all people should have the most confidence, the most boldness. I'm not telling you you're never going to face a life-threatening situation. I'm telling you that Jesus Christ will walk with you through it. And He will give you confidence and poise in the midst of it. And He will bring you safely to His kingdom if that is His moment for you. But you can rest in Him. And you won't stop existing Your mind will be active, your eyes will see, your ears will hear. Those who believe and trust and follow Him will never die. Jesus looked at Martha and He says, do you believe this? Martha wasn't so sure. But we can be sure. We can be confident. We are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation. It will not pass away. We are made to be partakers of the divine nature. You realize this morning that God is offering to feed you with His life source. He's offering to give you Himself. He's offering to meet you in all the most significant ways. He has great love for us. Our hope, our strength, our certainty is in Jesus Christ. And I can tell you, God is my witness. When I eat at his table and drink from his well, I have peace. And when I don't, I'm a mess. I'm no fun to be in and no fun to be with apart from Jesus. But when I take time to eat at his table... And drink from his well. He gives me confidence and hope and peace. Do you want to know how to live in the world today? Live in the presence of Jesus. Dwell in his midst. Allow him to pour his life into you. He is our sustainer and our strength. Father, thank you this morning for your word to us. I pray that as we think about the Last Supper, we would think about how deeply and vitally we are connected to you. How you gave your life to restore ours. And how you rose from the dead to fill us with new life and new hope. Lord, I ask this morning that you would teach us 
the habit and the key of daily feasting at your table. That we might be lights shining in dark places, beacons of hope in the place of fear, people of confidence and grace in the midst of those who are anxious and worried, that we might offer hope to those who are without hope. I ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. As Sharon plays our closing postlude, who has the benediction this morning? Someone have that? Herb, would you lead us in our closing prayer, please? And after Herb prays, you are welcome to leave as you choose. And those of you who are elders, if you would join me down front in a few moments so we can pray with our brother Cody.